Greetings, everyone. Are you enjoying the trip? The journey? Most of us don't think of ourselves as being on a spaceship with a finite environment traveling through space at incredible speeds. We do not think every night as we roll our eyes up into our brains, and that's probably why I sleep so well sometimes, I don't see very much and don't think very much, that we're traveling from the time we go to sleep until we wake up approximately eight hours, about 8,000 miles. That every single day, in a 24-hour day, you travel approximately, if you live anywhere near the equator, the temperate zones, about 25,000 miles. A little quick arithmetic would be fun sometime to figure 10 days, 250,000 miles, 100 days, 2,500,000 miles, 30 days, what does that come to, about 7,000,000.5, 7.5 million miles? And to think of how many miles you have traveled in your lifetime. Now, there are people who never leave their own county who say, well, I ain't never been nowhere. I've uh, been to the county seat one time, a big city. I've met people like this down in eastern Louisiana. Of course, I'm not picking on you people from Louisiana. There are people like that in Texas that have never been outside of their own county, and they don't think they've gone anywhere. But they have. Maybe you don't remember some of the Gemini Thorogena shots of the Apollo missions when astronauts up there in a little capsule with a certain absolutely finite, measurable list of life support systems. So much oxygen aboard, so much water aboard, so much food aboard, so much fuel aboard for those rocket engines. Everything because of telemetry, absolutely measured right down to the nth or the fraction of a second. And they had some problems about whether or not they could ever even enter the Earth's atmosphere once again and be brought safely back to Earth. They were scared half to death over there at Cape Kennedy, at Cape Canaveral, and down at Houston, because for a time they couldn't get those retro rockets to work, and it looked like they may literally have been stranded in space. And if they had been, they probably would still be up there. We would have been treated to the last week barely understandable communications from these people who were literally starving to death and finally when their oxygen gave out they would just suffocate and they would die. Many of you have heard about Earth Day. You've seen some of the recent television interviews with scientists and you've seen the spate of ads perhaps in some weekly news magazines from some of the biggest polluters of all time. Those who go to court, those who lobby in Washington, trying desperately to prevent the enactment of certain legislation which would cause Detroit and other large industries to clean up their act. One of the worst offenders of all time has been GM. GM has taken out a huge one-page ad in something like Time magazine with about 14 paragraphs patting itself on the back for its tremendous record of being conscious of the environment and of fighting pollution. Earth Day is an attempt by concerned scientists, not only in this country but elsewhere, to focus the attention not only of industry and of government, of science, but also of the private sector, even individuals like you and me, of the need to recycle things like aluminum cans or paper or some of these boxes and cartons and plastics in which we have purchased the means of our own daily nutrition. And when we toss them away, seven million years from now, they'll still be out there, these plastic milk bottles. They just will not break down because they're not biodegradable. Trying to focus in on some of the problems of this world of ours, and I recall the Club of Rome, the report many years ago by a group of scientists that 
formed a symposium of more than 100, representing more than 100 separate nations who had no political axe to grind, no religious axe to grind. They were not trying to start any kind of a movement, but merely trying to take the temperature of the world with regard to overpopulation, pollution, and other threats to the environment. And by simple mathematical curves, extrapolation out into the future to try to assess or appraise how long can we human beings expect to live in any sort of a world of habitable equilibrium into the future? Now, a lot of us get uptight because we realize the tremendous influx of Orientals and other minority groups, especially Kampucheans, Cambodians, that is, or Vietnamese, Laotians. People now are fleeing from Hong Kong, from all over the Pacific Rim, as it is called, and especially, of course, the other minorities who have flocked in here from Central and South America and from Mexico. We look at the total character of huge cities like Los Angeles and even Dallas-Fort Worth changing with, by, with gigantic ethnic groups, minorities, moving into areas and now, of course, legislation being considered at certain regional levels to go to the Congress to make the United States into a bi or a trilingual nation. And instead of forcing many of these other minorities to learn the language that is the American speech, English, from which we got, we got from our mother country, England, that many kids from now on in school are perhaps going to be forced to learn Vietnamese or Thai or Chinese or Spanish or some other tongue. That gets us uptight. Why do these people come flooding into Wonderland USA? Why, because they have the idea and it astounds some of them to learn that it isn't true, that every American is rich. Did you know that? There are millions of people in Southeast Asia, millions of people in Central and South America. In Mexico, they called them los riquisillos. It means the filthy rich. It's a sort of a despective term. It means tremendously rich Americans. We have things like curbs along the roadways, driveways, Post office boxes, homes. We go by a mobile home village, a lot of people say, look at those poor people living in a mobile home. You ought to go to Calcutta. You ought to go to Bombay. You ought to go to Saigon. Renamed Ho Chi Minh City, isn't it? After we lost. But you ought to go to many other cities like Cairo, where you see thousands of vultures perching on the parapets of downtown buildings. The only city that I recall where you see vultures downtown and then begin to compare the way of life of the bulk of all of humanity. Ninety-two percent of humanity lives in poverty, squalor, endemic disease, sickness, want, lack of every basic necessity that would boggle your mind. Why do those people come here? Because they want to have a slice of the pie, a little piece of the action, a little bit of the good life that we Americans enjoy, the luxury of about 90 electrical servants to do Mrs. Housewife's bidding for her. Flushing toilets indoors, not a stream of filthy fecal matter and human urine outdoors with children damming it and playing in little boats in a pool of urine, which I've seen with my own eyes in Egypt. No, they want what we've got. Flushing toilets and refrigerators with ice makers and the things we take for granted, a switch you turn and a light comes on. They want a little bit of the luxury of Wonderland, USA. Now, we like to talk about the developing countries. 
the third world countries. I wish I could have four or five hours to talk to you about that, and I couldn't, and even then I couldn't begin to scratch the surface. I will just cite Brazil as a case in point. If you've seen the enormously ugly photography of the rape of the Mato Grosso, the huge jungles of the entire Amazonian basin that is larger than the United States of America, the attempts by the Brazilian government to completely defoliate that, to develop it, and you can't develop a rainforest because of the acidity of the soil and the very nature of the thing, which actually affects the entirety of the weather on this earth. And men are beginning to wake up to realize that, but that government does not realize it because it's one of the most poverty-stricken, 300-plus runaway inflation every single year. And, of course, all of these nations want what? They want to rise to the level of the United States of America and of Western Europe, the glittering showcase of democracy of West Germany of northwestern Europe, in some cases, that even puts us to shame. And, of course, the incredibly developed technology of Japan. Can you imagine a world, then, with all of the people of India, some 500-plus million human beings, having all of the double ovens and the garages with a genie on the door, and all of the refrigerators and washing machines and dryers and all of the energy slaves and all the automobiles and all of the factories and all the coke ovens and Bessemer ovens and all of the slag heaps and all of the huge steel mills and all of the gigantic industries that produce all of these many things of these 450, 550, and in the case of China, more than one billion human beings desperately want. Won't it be a wonderful world when every family in China has two cars? Think about it. Earth Day zeroes in not only on acid rain, on solid pollution, water pollution, air pollution, on everything from strontium-90, traces of which can be found by samples of ice taken at the North Pole. It doesn't only zero in on all of these obvious forms of pollution, like automobile, internal combustion, engine emissions, but it also focuses in on that simple can you used this morning to spray your hair or the simple way it is to paint a fence, or how easy it is to get your work done, wipe it off. That's what they say, the lemon mist or whatever that comes in a spray can. Well, what it's done is to gradually destroy a portion of the protective layer that keeps many of the harmful rays of the sun from the skin of human beings. And so now the statistics are that in a number of years, more than 1,000-fold has been the increase in incidence of melanoma, skin cancer, on American. Just the other day, for the first time in a couple, three, four years, I sat out for about 30, 40 minutes. Well, I've sat out longer than that, but always in previous years of my life, I tan very, very quickly and very easily. It's the nature of my skin. I sat out for about 30 minutes. It took me three days to get over it, and three days later, I could press on my chest and see where I had burnt clear into about a second layer of my skin. It kind of scared me. That little bit of exposure to the sun. Something is different now. It didn't used to be that way. I could actually stay out an hour, two or three or four, the first day of summer in previous years, and I could be exposed to the sun and just get the most gorgeous, nice tan. Everybody wants to be tan. They want to look dark for some reason. Some of us have a head start. Bronson, we joke about that all the time. But I wanted to look about like his color. If I could have gotten his color in any given summer, and I approached it several times, I was real proud. Look at my tan. Not anymore. I want to protect myself from that sun. I asked about whether or not you're enjoying the trip. Let me put it another way. What time is it? I don't mean that it's almost 1130. 
and a date on a man-made calendar produced by the Romans, I mean, what time is it in this journey we are taking? How near the journey, the journey's end, are we? Because that journey has a definite end. My life has a definite end, and so does yours. We're allotted, generally, that time span that is revealed in the Bible of approximately 75 years. Some people can live much longer than that, and many people live much shorter than that today. But generally, that's what is allotted, our three score and ten, or approximately 70 years. What time is it for the good green earth on which we live? In the 24th chapter of Matthew, Jesus Christ gave the most shocking series of prophecies about the horrifying things that would come to pass in those moments just prior to Christ's return and to the interference of God in human affairs. I won't read all of those. We're familiar with them, beginning in verse 6 of that chapter, wars and rumors of wars. And if you've noticed the news lately, and of course there are about 65 of them going at any given time, North and South Yemen. There's still border incidents and problems in North and South Korea. The Iraqis and the Iranians would still like to go at it, though the guns are temporarily silenced. We hear of other bomb blasts of an idiot that blasted a school bus in Beirut the other day and killed a lot of hapless children, innocent victims of rival, quote, Christian, end quote, gangs in Beirut, Lebanon, which looks like a city of Wuppertal in the Ruhr during World War II after the 8th Air Force had visited it, a city of decaying rubble with constant mortar and artillery attacks in every quarter of it, an uninhabitable part of the world, and now we're sitting on tenderhooks wondering whether or not one of our American hostages is about to be released. So there are minor wars flaring up here and there around the world all the time. The recent invasion of Panama, our concern over Nicaragua, our concern over what is happening in Lithuania, as some of these people in East Prussia want to get out from under the heel of Soviet domination. And he said, there shall be nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom in verse 7. And there shall be famines. And, of course, we are probably unaware of what's happening in Ethiopia, Eritrea. If you were to take a train from Mogadishu to along Dawa to Addis Ababa and see the poverty and see the desert encampments of people that are out there with their blackened fingernail and first finger cropping every little tiny green thing that comes out of the soil, the distended bellies of little black children with bodies of legs and arms like sticks who are in the final stages of malnutrition. We remember an American senator who has lost his life in an air crash down there. The many people who, though they knew they could come up with the money and the shiploads of grain to send to those people, everywhere from Ethiopia to Chad to the Libyan desert who were starving, that a lot of times the food didn't get to them because of the infrastructure that was not there, the distribution, the graft, and the corruption. That oftentimes those that have feed sacks with the hands that say made in USA and hands over the ocean, a gift from the United States of America, end up instead in the hands of despots who sell it to their starving people. But famine has been a way of life for many of these third world countries for years. Pestilences. There's a pestilence here in East Texas we pay no attention to generally, but you could go outside. I could lead you within 100 yards of my house in your bathing suit, and say, just go ahead and lie down on the ground. And within hours, you would be dead. My walk yesterday morning, every step along the entire three-mile route inside where I live, Emerald Bay, there were fire ants. Not every other step, every step. Now, I get my exercise by stirring them up. I take my one iron. 
And in the spring, they make these mounds, and they got jillions of eggs and these queens waiting to hatch, waiting to hatch out. And I just absolutely just destroy those mounds and whack away, and I get a tremendous kick out of that because they're evil little monsters that cause tremendous poison in your system that are about as virulent as any tiny little insect I've ever known. They hurt like mad, and they if I get four or five of them, they probably have to amputate my hand because I really do react against them, and some people do. They're very toxic. Well, they're killing the quail. They're killing, ba they're killing baby songbirds. They're killing deer. They're actually eating them alive, getting their eyes and crawling up their nostrils all over the hill country and all over Texas. They're affecting wildlife, and they are like a pestilence, and they are a foreign invasion that began to spread, brought in here from other countries. Now, you probably haven't heard about Malathion and the people, including David Molly Antion, worried about the finish on their automobile out in Los Angeles and the city of Pasadena actually sending a police helicopter trying to take the spraying helicopters and get them out of the air over Pasadena. But even in the habitable area, some 12 million people live in that area from San Diego to Santa Barbara had to experience these squadrons of helicopters going over there, pouring out millions of gallons of powerful toxic chemicals because of the medfly, the invasion of the Mediterranean fruit fly that can totally destroy the entire citrus industry in the United States. I won't cite all kinds of other things, of which there are many that I could mention, but Jesus said there would be famines, drought, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places here and there, not necessarily in unusual or heretofore unrecorded places, but here and there, diverse places. Toward the end of this chapter, when he talked about the intervention of God and the second coming of Christ, he said in verse 36, Of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Notice the time element. There is a time with which Jesus is dealing. It is called a day and an hour. The time element is everywhere evident in the 24th chapter of Matthew because it is a step-by-step -step sequence of events that is depicted in the 6th and 7th chapters of Revelation. And actually, in the broad sense, all the way through the book of Revelation, which is a chronology with certain inset chapters of the last days of human experience on this earth and of the eventual interruption of human affairs, the interference in human affairs by a hidden unseen, and today largely unknown and unrecognized, divine power. It is far easier to get most people in this world to believe in UFOs, to believe in TM, to believe in Satanism, to believe in demonism, to believe in occultism, to take a spray can and spray that upside-down cross or that swastika on a viaduct of a railway somewhere and meet out in a grove of trees and dissect the body of an animal. It's far easier to get people to go into a bookstore and pick up a novel on science fiction, to get people believing there really are beings in outer space, than it is to get people to believe in the fact that, yes, there are beings in outer space, and, yes, there are spirits gone abroad into the world. And there are countless millions of righteous angels under Michael and Gabriel, and one-third of whatever that number it is, and it is, it is finite, it's not infinite. There are a certain number of millions or billions, who knows, of angelic spirit beings, and there are no more. It says that one-third of the angels followed Satan the devil in his rebellion. 
If we could go back to that day, aeons and aeons ago, not aeons ago, perhaps the way astronomers count time, but certainly at some distant point of time, as we think of time, which means nothing to God because with him a day is like a thousand years and vice versa, was there ever a time when, thinking of the universe as we know it, there was nothing? Now that boggles your mind, doesn't it? How deep is the ocean, goes the song. How high is the sky? Well, how far is, ha is far, and how long is long, and how short is short? What is time? Time is distance. It is space. Space and time are the same thing, because time is measured by the distance the Earth travels around the sun, and the distance the moon travels around the Earth as the Earth is traveling around the sun. And we measure on a man-made clock the distance we travel when the sun shines on us, which remains fixed in its place in our solar system, with all of these various bodies that we call the planets captured by its magnetic field, whirring about very slowly, but on absolute measurable paths, so that once every 19 years, although the metonic cycle is imperfect and needs a little bit of, uh, of uh, adjustment, that basically they come back into a certain conjunction of where they basically were about 19 years previously. And it's all a matter of measurement. Was there a time when there was nothing? Well, now, what are you? You can go and look an encyclopedia to find out what you are, but you can look at yourself. You are skin, flesh and blood, sinew, muscle, skeleton, circulatory, digestive, nervous system, you are a human being. Human beings, at the time of the explosion of the first atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, literally ceased to exist. Their bodies were converted in an instant from flesh to energy. They were simply vaporized. The flash that was overhead the city of Hiroshima was so bright and carried such incredible power, a Japanese lady who was walking across a stone bridge, and I understand the print of the kimono is still there, was vaporized, and that light shot through her body and actually imprinted the colors and the, the pattern of her kimono on a stone bridge, but the lady disappeared. What is nothing? And what is something? Well, this pulpit is something. It's oak. And it has fibers, and those fibers are in the shape of molecules that are very long and resilient and very stringy. And you can look up oak in an encyclopedia. But what is oak? Well, then you'll look at cellulose and find all the various constituent parts of wood and why it was the roots knew to single out certain nutrients and to cause the law of gravity to be violated to cause tons of liquid to flow upward into a huge tree that had little Venetian blinds on the back of its leaves that caused evaporation. And evaporation causes circulation. And that in the spring, that huge oak tree, adding one more ring each year, grew and grew and grew. And I can see these rings here, and each one of these is an annual ring. Now, if this were to be preserved and carefully polished and every now and then perhaps scraped and refinished and taken care of, it would be here hundreds and hundreds of years from now. Wood is very endurable unless I set a match to it. But on the other hand, it will not be hundreds of years from now still in its former shape if I were to set a match to it. Take a sledgehammer, break it up into kindling, put it in my fireplace, and I probably could cart this pulpit out in a little paper sack that big around. 
Where would it have gone? I would have experienced its heat. I would have seen its light. I would have felt its radiant energy. And the ash and the smoke would have gone up and mixed with all of the rest of the universe, of the envelope that is air that covers the earth at least. And I would carry out the remaining ash and sprinkle it on my garden as fertilizer. So I could convert something into virtually nothing. Then what is this oak pulpit? It is energy. It is heat and light that can give off certain wavelengths, but it's sitting here in a solid form. But do you know it's not solid? Not really. We just think it's solid because we're flesh and it's harder than we are. No, it's made up of molecules. And do you know that each molecule is made up of who knows how many millions of atoms? And each one of those atoms is made up of who knows how many parts. Scientists are still trying to discover little parts that exist for one trillionth of a second to go flitting like electrical currents through an atom. But each atom is a model of the universe. So you have macrocosm in a universe, microcosm in an atom, and it looks like the same great architect, the same great mind designed it all. So that when we release the energy stored in something that we call something, an oak pulpit or a piece of wood, and we convert it to nothing, that great architect, that great designer, that great power that is God, was able to take energy and compact it in his hand and make it into something. What is stone? Is stone eternal? Of course not. Why, if you to go to Hawaii today, to the big island of Hawaii, and go over there and golf on Malakea or one of these really beautiful resorts, you would see cold black lava and startling green grass. What a contrast with the blue of the ocean. Those islands came bubbling up out of a fissure in the sea. And as it boiled and boiled, and finally they began to protrude above the surface of the sea over there, and the huge cones began to appear, rising thousands of feet in the air until an island only 5,000 feet high on the island of Kauai actually experiences more rainfall than any other place on the face of the earth. That's where all their rain comes from. I mean, they're, they're fresh water. In Hawaii, it rains down on those islands. That was solid rock, and it was melted to where it flowed like hot pudding. So rock, stone, can be melted, can't it? You ever seen on a blackboard a professor give you the chemical formula for quartz? you know that it actually includes H2O? That practically all minerals do? H2O is water. That it includes in its chemical makeup the elements, in other words, that are everywhere extant in creation. So that every stone, you can say, came from other elements of creation. What is marble? Or nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, not N-I-C-E. It is either orthoclase or plagioclase feldspar. It is quartz, and it is mica, and there's one other smaller constituent part. And sometimes when it's very easily broken up, it has more feldspar and less quartz. And when it's very, very hard, it has more quartz and less feldspar. But it all is found in a pure form. There are gigantic cubes of solid feldspar that always breaks according to right angles. Orthoclase is what that means. Now, where do they come from? Every stone is made up of different parts and kinds of other stones. So all that is something was made of nothing. 
Now, at a dim time in the distant past, Almighty God created the universe. At another time in the distant past, there was a great battle that you read of in the book of Revelation, and also in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, when one of the archangels rebelled against this vast creation, and who knows but what they were literally causing stars, planets, to be moved out of their orbit and literally causing chaotic explosions and disarray at like a star wars in the universe itself. Because what you see in the universe is the wreckage of gigantic explosions in the past. Astronomers have a reason for thinking that the universe began with a so-called Big Bang, because they can discern that it does seem to be retreating away from the Milky Way in all directions. And they will probably learn a great deal more, and some of it may prove to be startling, but it won't show life in outer space when the Hubble telescope gets launched here next Tuesday, hopefully, into an orbit above the Earth to where, for the first time, man will be able to put a gigantic telescope and to pierce into the remote reaches of his universe without having to pierce this envelope of air that distorts the view and distorts the picture. And he can go to the highest mountains, but they've got to be mountains that are easy to reach. They can't be Everest or K2. They've got to be some mountain like Palomar down in Southern California or Mount Wilson, six, seven, eight thousand feet where men can get there without being blown off the top like the Mount Ararat or K2, as I said, where they could not stay thirty-some thousand feet up. It may prove some fascinating pictures will be, or some fascinating things will come back and again revolutionize astronomy. Yes, there was a time when space creatures came down to this earth, and if we could have been there, we would have seen a being that probably would have looked like a man kneel by a stream and begin to take clay in his hand and begin to mold and form and shape clay in the same way that we might make a snowman or in the same way that a sculptor might make some sculpture of a famous artist or a poet or a musician. And he molded and framed and shaped a human form and then eventually, when it was all finished, with finely chiseled features and a perfectly shaped physiognomy with head and chest and everything, it looked like he was giving it mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. He leaned over and perhaps held the nose and put his mouth to the mouth and blew, and it suddenly was infused with a pinkish-reddish glow, and the eyes blinked and opened, and a voice said, You are Adam in an ancient tongue that is not preserved today, but that brilliant mind already understood. When the Apostle Paul was appearing before Agrippa, and he was saying, I do not worship anything other than that which the fathers said, that there shall come a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And to this question am I called here today, saying none other things than that which Moses said should come. And then he went through about what had happened to him, that I myself was exceedingly zealous against the church, and I thought to hail men and women into prison, and I made havoc of the church, and I caused them to curse and to blaspheme, and brought them in and tortured them, and made them give up their faith. But I was on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden with a booming roar of great blinding light came out of heaven, and I was blinded and couldn't see, and I had to seek a man to take me by the hand, and I heard a voice that said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but immediately began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. 
And at the conclusion of his fantastic discourse, he said, King Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Think about it. Why is it incredible that God should raise the dead if God could make the universe, if he could form the earth, if he could create Adam out of red mud and breathe the breath of life into his nostrils? Why do we think it is a great thing if God could raise a body from the dead? Because people don't know the true God. They don't know his gigantic, limitless power. They don't know the brilliance of his mind. They don't know that he's a master designer, a master architect. They don't know anything at all about his time frame. God is working out a plan. He's working according to a program. An architect, an engineer, an aeronautical engineer or designer is not a surrealist, but a realist. He has a program, he's got a project, he's got a plan. He wants to span a huge estuary or a bay with a suspension bridge. He wants to put a building 102 stories straight up that won't topple over and is actually going to withstand a certain movement of the earth in Los Angeles. He wants to build a tunnel beneath the mountain. He's building on the basis of known laws and he is skillful and he is on a schedule. And when the contractor signs the contract to build this great structure, he's got on his wall a time schedule, a time frame. It'll be finished by April 1993. You can turn the key and get people in here by May of 1993, and he's working on a plan. Do we live on a soul factory, the way the churches tell it? Are we merely here every day thousands upon thousands of people dying many of them in agony in squalor and sickness poverty starvation advanced stages of every kind of disease you can imagine in the third world countries and their soul in those countries immediately goes down to spit and hiss and burn for all eternity because they had the abysmal misfortune to be born japanese or thai or chinese or indian but if they were a good Christian, sitting in some mainstream church in a piney woods grove in Louisiana or up here in East Texas or up in perhaps Oregon or Iowa, a respectable church with a good respectable name, and that soul leaves that body, they go up to heaven. Does God just have a soul factor? He went way off in the universe somewhere, and we just see dimly the back of this creature that just walked off billions of light years ago, and he's billions and trillions of light years away. Not concerned, doesn't care, not watching, can't know, doesn't want to know, isn't interested. And the best talent he's got is visible every Sunday morning on television trying to get the world saved. And the best talent that Satan the devil has got is on every weekday night and all the cable TVs and all the video stores all the comedians and the Johnny Carsons and all the people who like to make little quips and funny jokes about drug abuse and all of them like to make a lot of little jokes about homosexuality and think it's funny. They reveal, they display, they show their sin as Sodom, they hide it not, says the Bible. Are we just living on a soul factory where our life, which we know is too short when you get to be 60 and look at the future as opposed to the way it looked when I was 16, and when it's over, it's over? Or is there a great architect? Is he working out a plan? And is that plan on a schedule? Very, very recently, 
the entire world changed. You know when that happened, of course, November 1989. The whole world changed. In November 1989, the Cold War came to a close. The Berlin Wall opened up. Events began to occur that I had been foretelling and writing about, and those of us in God's church had been writing and preaching about for literally 35 and more years. A coming United States of Europe that perhaps fully five of those nations or more would come out from behind the Iron Curtain and Soviet domination and form a part of a new super-European state that is moving toward completion. Maybe later this year, German reunification will be accomplished. The Soviet Union is in a shambles. Seven out of 15 of its Soviet socialist republics are either in some kind of ferment or riot or actually actively screaming for independence. And the Soviet Union is on its back financially and economically and has its hands really full. East Germany is economically bankrupt, and the West Germans are going to have to absorb the biggest debt in all of their history and only another Wirtschaftswunder or economic miracle like that of the 1950s that brought them to supergiant status is going to see them through the absorption of their poor Eastern brother. Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, all have come out from behind the Iron Curtain, as did East Germany. In a very short period of time, communism has been proved to be a colossal failure. Now what next? The magazines are continually talking about the United States of Europe, about supermarts, about building a gigantic wall to keep American exports out. Americans are scrambling to get into Eastern Europe, as they are trying to scramble with a huge Pacific Rim meeting that is coming up in Los Angeles in a couple of months to be attended by about 3,000 people, entrepreneurs and would-be exporters who want to penetrate the so-called Pacific Rim with American manufactured goods, but Japanese simply don't want to buy them. And the book that is written by the chairman of Sony Corporation, Japan Can Say No to America, says very clearly why. Why should we buy inferior products, they ask. Now, constantly, for the 35 years of my ministry, I have been aware that there is a time program, a time element, a schedule upon which Almighty God is working. Why? Because Christ says so of that day and that hour. And what was the first question of Matthew 24? The first question was, when? What time? When will all these things come to pass? Chapter 24, verse 3, as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And he laid out a series of events. I say we have entered into that series of events. You cannot tell me that hundreds of scientists who have no specific axe to grind, who gather together in third neutral countries, like up in Norway or Scandinavia, to take the temperature of this sick earth of ours on which we live, and try to project out into the future how long our coal reserves, how long the oil reserves, how long all the strategic and essential mineral reserves will last us, and how long can we survive a world with the massive pollution we experience today, where our lungs are asked to withstand something that even stone cannot withstand, where major monuments and buildings are deteriorating and bridges and the infrastructure of society itself as a result of acid rain. Can we imagine, as I said at the beginning, a world where all of these other impoverished countries experience the incredible amount of wealth that we in the United States enjoy? Where all of the third-class passengers suddenly want to get past that little veil that separates them in this little capsule of ours, this 
good green spaceship earth, and they want to come roaring up and grab us and throw us out of the first class seat and take our seat instead. How long do we have to live in any kind of equilibrium? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, in verse 37, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What was it like in the days, again, time, a time, an epoch, an era of Noah, Noah's day, Noah's time, the time in which Noah lived? What was his day like? Oh, they married, it says here. They drank. Doesn't necessarily mean they just got drunk all the time. And when you see somebody buy a six-pack, it doesn't mean he screams around the corner, hits the parking brake, opens it up, and devours the six-pack before he gets home. I'm not saying that everybody was a drunk. It's just saying what they were doing was they were living life normally as best they knew how. Oh, they were just drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Now, when you do that, you're planning for time. You're planning for the future. You're thinking about a wedding coming up. You're thinking about grandchildren ahead. You've got some guesses, you've got some plans and some hopes and dreams that have to do with reaching out into the future. You're looking years beyond. When you see a young couple go back down the aisle with this look of absolute rapture on their face, putting together a home and a family, you're looking at time stretching out into the future. And so they did during Noah's day, but Noah was a preacher. I gave you a sermon some weeks ago on whether or not Noah was the most unsuccessful preacher in all time. How about a man who preached his heart out, he was a preacher of righteousness, it says, for 120 years and never had a single convert. Now, some of you people can't deal with frustration. Try that one on for size. I, of course, could not have been on radio and television and preaching and preaching and preaching for 35 years with not a single convert unless I knew where there was a gold mine where I could dig out about a ton a day. Because if not one person ever responded, and if not one person were ever converted and began to believe in God's laws, then we would have not had the support to do what we're doing. But Noah, poor old Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he preached for 120 years and did not even succeed in converting a member of his own family. And it said they knew not. Why didn't they know? Now, what was it like during the days of Noah? I also told you in that sermon about some of the archaeological remains of some of the caves of southern Switzerland and of eastern France and of some of the Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon and other remains that actually proved that cannibalism was extant in the pre-flood period. And there are known in the Middle East, and you can see some of that referred to even in Halley's Bible Handbook and other Bible helps, archaeological excavations which obviously have discovered the flood plain or the flood deposits that were laid there at the time of the flood of Noah. So you can date whether or not these things, these campfires, these animal and human remains were there prior were put down and were there because they were the remains of people who were hiding out in these caves prior to the flood of Noah or subsequent to the flood of Noah. And during the time of Noah, man, it says in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, had utterly corrupted his way. There was every kind of untoward gigantism 
It said that there were giants and monsters, and some of that had still apparently been in the genes of the human family, because once in a great while that type of thing can occur even today. There were men that David slew that had six toes and six fingers, you recall. And, of course, Goliath may have been literally 12 feet tall. He was a gigantic man. But during that day there was crime, there was every evil, every kind of sin contrary to God's law, murder, I mean casual sex right out in public, but there was not only murder, there were dedicated bands who were literally preying upon the human species for their food supply. God looked upon the earth. Let me tell you that a righteous God who sent his son Jesus Christ, and God the Father, of course, was not the personage of the God family who dealt with the patriarchs, as we well know from John 1 and Hebrews 1. The one who tells us in his word, God is love, and that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he first loved us, and while we were yet sinners, he died for us, etc., a God who has great love does not drown perhaps hundreds of millions, if not a billion or so, human beings without such enormous cause that it would boggle your mind if you could understand what they were doing. Is it cause for putting wretched, twisted, perverted, savage human beings out of their misery who would literally take their own precious three-day-old baby girl and burn her to a pagan idol? Is that cause enough? Are there human beings who are so perverted that the only solution is to pull the lever in the electric chair? I hate to tell you, but the answer is yes. Yes, there are. And they say that does not deter crime? Well, he won't commit any more murders. It deters all of his. Almighty God drown the whole human race because of their unbelievable evil. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, as it was during the days of Noah. Now, by extrapolation, let's think a little further of what he said. Noah was building a vessel, an ark. There may have been many, many employees. Noah was a preacher of righteousness that had little or no success. He said a little later on through Ezekiel that even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that is the land at the time of Christ's interference and God's day of the Lord, that no man would save anyone other than himself, that their righteousness would not be attributed to society in general or to a certain city in which they lived or to their family, but they would save only themselves. So here is, in a sense, a big work with small fruits, a voice in an absolute Babylon of sexual and criminal wilderness. Your Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Does that tell you in the days of the coming of, son of, of the Son of Man there will be prior to his coming a great Christian repentance? a great gigantic evangelistic work that will result in the conversion of millions of people, that millions of people will be standing there waiting for Christ's coming, or doesn't it tell you, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Not my words, but his. A work that seems to be big, small fruits, a work of warning, of impending disaster, a work 
that was necessary for what? What happened at Noah's time? Most perished, but the human race was saved alive. What's going to happen at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ? Most are going to perish, but the human race will be saved alive. There's a cause, there's a purpose, there is a program, there is a plan. Jesus Christ of Nazareth laid out in Matthew 24 a plan, and he talked about the time element of that day and that hour, and pointed to all of the problems in society and the globe, the entire world in general, that we have gone over today. As you watch CNN and your network nightly news, at scientists concerned about pollution, at crime, the economy of the world, the rising supergiant in Europe, cannot you sense and cannot you know on a weekly and a daily basis what time it is? I'll tell you what time it is. It's late. 